Good morning. It's a blessing to be able to worship with you this morning and to bring the Lord's Word to you. And also want to wish all of the fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers here a very happy Father's Day. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Throughout history, people have questioned our claim as Christians that the Bible is what it says it is, that it's the infallible Word of God. But one reason that we can be confident that the Bible is the infallible Word of God is the fact that it's a very candid read. What I mean is that if the Bible were a publicity piece written by con men or the work of deceived and naive fools, such honesty would not be found in it. Or if it were an attempt to advance a false, self-serving narrative, the Bible would be filled with what we know today as spins. It would portray God's followers in the best possible light, conveniently ignoring their sufferings, shortcomings, faults, and failings. Or, if these things were mentioned, they would, of course, come with an airtight justification. But you don't have to go very far into the Bible to see that it simply doesn't do that. Rather, it consistently records the sufferings, failings, and shortcomings of the people it gives an account of, and it often does so in brutally honest detail. And these sufferings, struggles, and shortcomings that we read about in the Bible are not always things that are lived out before witnesses or a matter of public record. In fact, they often include suffering and struggles that are witnessed only by God. Things that would otherwise remain unknown to us. And Scripture doesn't stop there, because it often reveals the unchecked thoughts and emotions that give birth to suffering and struggles. Things that we can't observe, like doubt, fear, pride, envy, jealousy, anger, bitterness, and lust. These are things that are known only by God and the person who's wrestling with them. This morning, we're going to look at one such example of the Bible's honesty and transparency. We're going to look at what was likely the darkest moment in the life of a faithful and dynamic prophet of God. His name is Elijah, and this chapter of his life is found in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. So please follow along as I read. And I happen to read from the ESV Bible. I'm not sure what version you guys typically use, but I apologize if it's not the ESV. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, 
if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have bowed to Baal, in every knee that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Elijah's darkest hour recorded here was an intensely private moment. Only God witnessed it. So that leaves us with the question, why did God take that private moment and make it a matter of public record to be read by millions of people throughout human history. Did Elijah really need to have his dirty laundry, so to speak, aired out in public for everyone to read? Well, I can say for certain that Elijah's story is not included in Scripture in order to embarrass him. God is not in the habit of embarrassing his people. Rather, Eliza's struggle 
And God's gracious response were disclosed here for our benefit, that we might be equipped and encouraged in our suffering and trials. And like Elijah, God may encourage us at any time to share our sufferings and struggles, if doing so might benefit somebody else. In these moments, we're going to need to swallow our pride and embarrassment and embrace our ministry. As we dissect our passage this morning, we're going to see that God chose to include it in the canon of Scripture because it has important things to say to us as believers who are living in an increasingly broken world about our suffering and struggles and how the Lord deals with us in them. When, not if, But when we are in the depths of despair and struggling with thoughts like it's never going to get any better, God meets us there. He provides for our needs. And he reminds us that we too are not alone. In our suffering and trials, like Elijah, God calls us to remember the 7,000. If you don't know a lot about the history of Elijah, I'll give you a little bit of history here. He was easily one of the foremost prophets in redemptive history. He was a man of great faith and courage, a man of uncompromised devotion. God used Elijah to perform 16 unmistakable and undeniable miracles. In fact, his very name speaks to his heart and character. Because his name means, my God is Yahweh. Elijah was called to speak boldly for God at a time when idolatry in the nation of Israel was being promoted from the highest places in the land. And as a result, it reached epidemic status. In many ways, you could say that the idolatry of Elijah's day was much like that in our own. Of course, the history of Israel had its tragic state in their infamous and notorious infatuation with these idols. If you've ever read the history of Israel, you know that they never saw a pagan idol that they didn't like. In fact, every time Israel became familiar with some new god, some new false god of the surrounding nations, they just had to have it. And throughout the Old Testament, we see them caught in a cycle that goes from idolatry to repentance, to idolatry, to repentance, to, guess what, idolatry, to repentance, until they're finally sent into exile. And in Elijah's day, Israel's idolatry was exacerbated by words that went something like this, I, Ahab, who was the king of Israel, take you, Jezebel, to be my awfully, I mean, lawfully wedded wife. Ahab was, of course, called to be the king of God's covenant people, but he foolishly established a marital covenant with a woman who worshipped a false god named Baal. And in an effort to please her, because as the saying goes, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, Ahab had altars to worship this false god, erected all over the nation of Israel. 
And then, and perhaps in fear for his own domestic well-being, he silently stood by as his queen used her power to order the execution of all of God's prophets. In response to this blatant evil, God told Elijah to go and stand before the king and announce God's judgment that was coming on the nation. And so Elijah went, and he stood face to face with his adversaries who had called for his death. And he proclaimed that there would be no rain in the land, not even dew, until God told him to call for it. This announcement, as you can imagine, likely moved Elijah to the top of Jezebel's hit list. And so he immediately sought refuge to the east of the Jordan River, where God miraculously provided for him. From there, he relocated to the home of a widow. And while he was there, God performed two distinct miracles through Elijah on that widow's behalf. First, he ensured that she and her son had daily provisions of food. And second, he raised that son from the dead. So, having seen the mighty hand of the Lord at work, and not only his own, but also in the lives of those around him, Elijah returned to Israel, and he challenged 450 prophets of Baal and an additional 400 prophets of another false god of the time named Asherah to a spiritual showdown, if you will, on Mount Carmel. And here's what that involved. Elijah and the prophets of Baal were to erect an altar, put a sacrificial animal on that altar, and whose ever god could send fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice would be the winner. Sending fire from heaven would be absolute proof of the reality of that prophet's God. And since Elijah was a gentleman, he allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. And scripture tells us that they shouted, they prayed, they danced, they even cut themselves in desperation. But there was no fire. Elijah taunted them, saying that maybe Baal was thinking or traveling, taking a nap, and he encouraged them to pray all the louder. But no matter how loud they were, there was no fire, only silence from this false god. Finally, exhausted and bleeding, the prophets of Baal and Asherah stepped aside. And now it was Elijah's turn. And what did he do? He simply prayed, Lord, send the fire. But before he prayed, he had the altar and the sacrifice completely drenched in water so that there was a veritable moat around the altar. And I think he did this because Elijah lived by the edict that a God who can't burn wet wood is no good. He was going to show the priests of Baal that the God of Israel could burn even wet wood. He was going to remove any doubt that the God of Israel is the one true God. And so he prayed, and fire fell from heaven and consumed everything, including the water. At this, of course, the people of Israel fell on their faces and they shouted, The Lord, he is God! And with that, Elijah ordered the execution of all of the false prophets. And then, 
Just as Elijah had prayed for fire, he prayed for rain. And the rains came. I'll let you in on a little secret here. Many people don't know this, but Elijah was also an amateur musician. At that point, although it's not recorded in Scripture, he wrote a song that goes something like, Oh, I've seen fire, and I've seen rain. But unfortunately, he didn't have it copyrighted. And so many centuries later, a musician here in the U.S. named James Taylor claimed it as his own. But now you know where it really came from. While many people in Israel were incredibly grateful for the rain, there was one woman, of course, who was incensed. And she reminds us why we have the saying, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorn. Men, don't say amen there. And we come to verse 2 of our passage today, where Jezebel swears that before the day is out, Elijah would be dead. And suddenly, this prophet, who had just called down fire from heaven a few hours earlier, couldn't find hope. This prophet, who many days earlier had raised a boy from the dead, couldn't raise his own soul out of the pit of despair. Once unafraid to stand before King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and pronounce God's judgment in 1 Kings 17, here in 1 Kings 18.3 we read that Elijah, in fear and desperation, fled from his prophetic ministry in northern Israel to the southernmost settlement in Judah, called Beersheba. In Beersheba, we read that he leaves his servant and travels an additional day's journey into the desert. Friends, this is essentially a suicide attempt, because no one can live long in the harsh wilderness south of Beersheba. Once there, we read in verse 4 that Elijah did lay down under a bush, and he asked God to take his life, claiming that he was no better than his fathers. The word fathers here is likely a reference to all of the prophets who came before him. Elijah feels hopeless, like a failure. And despite appearing to have God's favor, and as we would say, so much going for him, He is in the throes of despair, and the human soul cannot sustain being there for long. It's ironic here that when Jezebel seeks Elijah's life, he won't surrender it to her. But then he flees into the desert and asks God to take it. So we have to ask here if it's really dying that Elijah fears. After all, as a prophet in Israel, he likely knew that his days were short. So if he wasn't running, at least not fully in fear of his life, what was the reason for Elijah's flight and fear? I believe the key here is in verse 9, where he tells God that he alone is left. Elijah is expressing his fear and anxiety here that the prophetic voice in Israel will end, and that there will be no one left to guide God's chosen people. Elijah may have been concerned that Jezebel would take his life, but he also felt like he had failed, and that this failure would have eternal consequences. 
When the Lord asks Elijah twice, what are you doing here, in verses 9 and 13, Elijah's response is the same both times. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Notice that Elijah answers God's question as to why he's in Beersheba by defending his heart for God and desire to serve. And he follows this with a whole litany of circumstances that he perceives indicate things will never be okay again. Elijah really wanted to show Israel that there was only one true God. He wanted them to repent from their sins so that the Lord would restore them. But looking at the dire nature of the events around him, Elijah, Elijah felt like hope was lost, like he's a failure as a prophet. And he seems to believe that once Jezebel sees to it that he's dead, there'll be no hope for a future. Again, Elijah may have run in fear for his life in part, but he also ran with feelings of failure, hopelessness, and anxiety about the future of the nation of Israel, the people of God. In Beersheba, we read that Elijah lies down under a bush and falls asleep, showing his exhaustion, his lack of hope, and his inability to continue in prophetic ministry. All of his past victories and experiences with God didn't make him immune from future struggles, suffering, or doubt. Being in ministry to people suffering and struggling with a wide variety of mental health challenges, I think that if Elijah had ended up in one of our psychiatric units today, he would have at least been diagnosed with suicidal ideation, depression, and anxiety. His suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually were real, and he was in desperate need. So then how does God respond to Elijah in his suffering? Well, we read that a messenger of God awakens him and tells him to eat and drink. Most translations call this messenger an angel, but the Hebrew word malak here more basically means messenger. In fact, it's the same word used for messenger that Jezebel sent to Elijah to warn him of his impending death. It's interesting that Jezebel sends Elijah a messenger of death, but God sends him a messenger of life who serves Elijah food and water, two essentials for physical survival in the harsh wilderness. In verse 6, we read that Elijah eats and drinks, but then falls asleep again, indicating that he's not yet recovered. He's still struggling. The messenger awakens Elijah a second time and urges him to eat and drink, this time providing the reason, for the journey will be too much for you. In the midst of Elijah's suffering here, his depression, his suicidal ideation, anxiety, and doubt, God provided Elijah with basic physical needs of food and rest. I think it's important to note there here, too, though, what God doesn't do. He doesn't tell Elijah that his faith isn't strong enough, 
or that he just needs to trust God more, or that he only needs to spend more time in prayer and Bible study, or that he must have some unconfessed sin causing all of this. He also doesn't tell Elijah that he just needs to pick himself up by his sandal straps and try harder, or fake it till he makes it. God doesn't doubt Elijah's faith. He doesn't criticize him for his struggling and suffering. He doesn't heap shame and blame on him by saying things like, Now don't you remember all that I've done for you? For goodness sake, through you I raised a boy from the dead. How dare you doubt my good plans and purposes? No. God was empathetic to Elijah's suffering. And he met him where he was and as he was. Not where he could have or should have been. In an act of sheer grace, God intervenes and provides this prophet with life-giving rest, food, and water. After the second round of rest, food, and water, Elijah goes in the strength of the Lord to Horeb, the mount of God. And in verse 11, we read that God calls Elijah to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. The wind, earthquake, and fire here, if you'll remember, are also things that were present on Mount Sinai when God met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. So we might expect to see God show himself in these ways here. Yet scripture is clear that this time the Lord was not in them. It wasn't until Elijah recognized the Lord in the sound of the low whisper that he went out from the darkness of the cave, wrapped his face in his cloak, and stood at its entrance. God didn't come to Elijah here with strong winds, earthquakes, or fire, bold and strong demonstrations of his power. Rather, he comes to a disheartened and frightened Elijah in a way that ministers to his pain, grief, and fear in a low whisper that calms him and doesn't exacerbate his suffering. While Elijah, while God meets Elijah where he is and as he is, God doesn't respond to Elijah quite as I think that we would hope, or maybe as I think I would hope. Because in the midst of the darkest nights of my soul, I long for God to ride in on a white horse, explain the reason for all of my suffering, and then rush in and make everything better in 24 hours or less. And by better, I mean fix things the way that, in my finite wisdom, I think they should be fixed. But I rarely receive that quick fix that I long for. Instead, like we read of Elijah today, I receive quiet reminders in Scripture about the truth of who God is, what he is like, and his promises for me now and in the future. I receive a God who is with me in the fear and grief and despair, but 
who doesn't always rescue me from it as quickly as I want. Sometimes the answer that I'm given is simply, I'm here. And then as we'll read of Elijah, that renewed call to keep on keeping on, even if it's one hour, one minute, or one second at a time. After meeting him where he is, providing for his basic needs, and reminding Elijah of his presence, the Lord then renews his commission and reminds him of what is true, of who he is, and of better yet, who God is. God calls Elijah to retrace his steps to leave Horeb and to travel to Damascus in order to anoint Hazael as king of Syria, then to anoint Jehu as king of Israel, and Elisha as his own prophetic successor. Elijah's commission here, of course, includes a word of judgment for Israel, as the three people that Elijah is going to anoint are going to carry out the slaughter of more Baal worshippers. But by anointing Elisha, God is telling Elijah that the prophetic line in Israel will continue. Through his recommission, God is telling Elijah that his good purposes will be accomplished. In essence, Elijah's ministry is to continue much as it had before. But in the recommissioning, God also tells Elijah that there are 7,000 Israelites who have not worshipped Baal. Far from being the only one left, Elijah is in really good company. He has not failed, and he is part of a community of faithful Israelites who worship the one true God. Like Elijah, we too will have suffering and trials. Unlike Elijah, and I think probably thankfully, we will not have them written in the canon of Scripture for everyone to read. But Elijah's story is told here because we are like him. We may not be prophets, but we too have days, weeks, sometimes even months of desperation and despair. Some of us may have even asked God to take our life, or may have even tried to take it ourselves. Whether you are where Elijah was, have been, or one day will be, this account is a call to all of God's people who are worn out, fearful, depressed, and in need of renewal. It reminds us that God is near to the brokenhearted and that he understands our weaknesses. How does he know this? Because he lived and walked among us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and he experienced our humanity. In the life of Christ, we sure see suffering, trial, hardship, and desperation. We read in Luke 22 that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane to have this cup passed from him, and that the agony he endured was so great that he sweat drops of blood. Matthew 27 records Jesus crying out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus understands our struggles, fears, and desperation because he too experienced them. He knows our weaknesses, and he remembers that we are but dust. But unlike us, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, and he cannot fail. 
His promises are sure, and His good promises cannot be stopped. In this, we have hope, brothers and sisters, that because of His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, there will be an end to all of the suffering and struggles that we face, both physically and emotionally. One day there will be no more crying or pain, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Jesus came to make new all that sin has broken in this world. And although we live in the now and not yet of that, we can be assured that as Jesus said from the cross, it is finished nonetheless. Brothers and sisters, our God is merciful and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As such, he meets us where we are and as we are, not where we ought to be, and reminds us that there are still 7,000. He is still God. We are not alone. And I pray that as we walk with others in our church, in our families, in our communities, through their suffering and trials, that we will care for others where they are and as they are, with the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word, that it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you understand our suffering, that you know what it is like to live and deal with this broken world and all of the losses and trials that come our way. Lord, I pray that you would be with all of those who are hurting or suffering, that you would encourage and strengthen and gird them up. Let them know that they are not wrong or bad for suffering, but that you know and understand and are walking with them. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we go from here today. Continue to apply this word to our hearts and to our lives lives, with everybody that we come in contact with this week. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.